0: This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, it was June 26, 1957, and Margaret Harold and Master Sergeant Roy D. Hudson were parked along a lonely dirt road around 12 miles west of Annapolis, Maryland. As they chatted, a man appeared from the woodland surrounding the road and began hastily walking towards them. He was wearing what looked like work clothing, and he appeared to be irate. He hollered to the couple that they couldn't be parked there. Roy apologized, and as he went to climb back into the car, the unfamiliar man asked for a ride back to the highway. Roy told the man no, while Margaret added there was no room for him in the car things then suddenly took a much more ominous turn. Hello listeners, I'm your host Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 56 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us the award-winning true crime podcast. Margaret Harold was a 36-year-old married mother of two who lived on a country road off the Baltimore-Washington Expressway. She was a profoundly religious woman, always making sure to attend the 7 o'clock Mass with her husband, John, each Sunday at St. Clement's Church in Lansdowne. John was an usher in the church and worked as a layout man for Acme Steel Company. As for Margaret, she worked as a business machine operator at Second Army Headquarters at Fort Meade. Just recently, Margaret started taking typing courses in hopes of earning a promotion. Margaret was also a devoted mother to 15 year old Nancy and 11 year old John. Each afternoon when Margaret finished work, John would walk the family dog, Prince down the road to wait for Margaret to get off the bus so they could walk back together. As John's mother recalled, they would sit on a rock and wait for her to come home. She always got home at about five o'clock. Then John and his mother would walk up the road arm in arm. Life was perfect for the Heralds, but Margaret and John desperately wanted to expand the family even further. Tragically, Margaret and John had suffered two miscarriages in the past four years. But at the beginning of 1957, Margaret learned she was expecting. At around 1.30 p.m. on June 26, 1957, Margaret Harold finished up her duties at Fort Meade. That afternoon, she had an appointment with her doctor in Baltimore. She was scheduled to begin taking a series of treatments that were expected to aid in her pregnancy. She and John wanted to do everything possible to ensure a successful pregnancy and birth. Since Margaret couldn't drive, her friend and colleague, 32-year-old Master Sergeant Roy D. Hudson, offered to give her a lift to Glen Burnie, where she would then catch the bus to Baltimore. Both she and Roy changed clothing at Fort Meade and then climbed into Roy's car and headed off in the direction of Glen Burnie. On the way, Margaret and Roy stopped at a restaurant near Annapolis where they had lunch and a glass of beer. From here, they drove along Maryland Route 450 before noticing a lonely dirt road near the intersection of State Route 424. According to Roy, Margaret was curious as to where the dirt road led to, so they decided to pull off and investigate. As Roy turned onto the lonely lane, they observed a 1947 or 1948 green Chrysler sedan. It was parked at the entrance to the road, but there didn't appear to be anyone inside. Margaret and Roy drove along the road until it reached a dead end. Roy then turned the car around and parked. Around 20 minutes later, Margaret noticed a man walking toward their car. He was about 35 years old and had black hair combed back and bushy eyebrows. He stood about six feet tall and was wearing what appeared to be a faded blue work shirt. As the man got closer to the car, Margaret and Roy could tell he was shouting something at them, but they couldn't hear what he was saying. Roy climbed out of the car while Margaret remained in the passenger seat. Roy recalled, I got out to see what he wanted. The unfamiliar man asked, What do you think this is, a national park He then said he was the watchman of the area and that the couple couldn't be parked there. Roy apologized to the man and told him they would leave, but as he turned to climb back into the car, the man asked whether he could have a lift to the highway. Roy told the man no, while Margaret hollered from the window that there was no room because their clothing was on the back seat. Despite being told no, the man walked around the side of the car opened the back door and climbed in behind Margaret. Roy recalled, as he opened the door, I saw he had a snub-nosed blue steel revolver. Before Roy even had a chance to respond, the man demanded money. He then bellowed, put your arms across the back of the front seat. Roy could see that the man was carrying an electrical cord. He assumed it would be used to bind them. Roy complied, putting his hands behind the seat, but Margaret put her hands behind her back. Roy then said to the man that if his hands were tied behind his back, he wouldn't be able to give him any money. The man ominously replied, don't worry about that, I'll get your money. At the same instant, the man lifted up a gun and shot Margaret in the back of the head. He then turned his attention to Roy. As the man squeezed the trigger on the weapon, Roy managed to hurl himself out the front door, narrowly missing the bullet intended for him. Roy bolted into the woodland and heard two shots close behind him. He stated, I heard him thrashing about in the woods after me. Roy continued to run until he reached a farmhouse. He struggled to catch his breath as he relayed the incident to the owner of the farmhouse, F.L. Bladen, who immediately contacted the police. Lieutenant Elmer Hagner was the first officer to be dispatched to the scene. With sirens blazing, he sped off in the direction of the lonely road, passing a green Chrysler sedan on the way. By the time police arrived, it was already too late for Margaret Harold she had been killed by one shot to the back of the head. The bullet had split upon impact, with a piece exiting the body and a part remaining inside. The murder investigation was led by Anna Arundel County Police Chief Wilbur C. Wade. His first point of action was to call in all available county police to help assist in the investigation and track down the killer. At the crime scene, investigators began searching for some kind of clue that could point them in the right direction. On the rear seat of the car, they found bloodstains. They found more on the door of the passenger's side. They then came across the electrical cord the killer had been carrying. Near the car, investigators found a peaked cap. They described it as a sports-type cap similar to the style that fishermen would wear. It was brown with white checks. Investigators then fanned out into the woodland surrounding the crime scene. Around 25 feet away, they came across a derelict shack. Inside, there was a Washington area newspaper and some other evidence indicating somebody had been staying there. There were crude photographs of women found plastered to the walls, as well as pictures that depicted women being tortured. The kind of images you find in detective style magazines of the time. On the floor of the shack, investigators found a piece of electric cord similar to the one the killer was said to be carrying. They continued their search and came across footprints that matched footprints near the car on a knoll overlooking the point where the lane intersected with State Route 450. This led investigators to believe that the killer had waited on the knoll for somebody to drive down the isolated road so that he could attack them investigators already had an idea of who the murder was perpetrated by they just didn't have his identity at around 3 a.m that morning a young couple denise eggleston and irvin adams were sitting in irvin's car in a wooded area around six miles away from where margaret was killed when another vehicle pulled up behind them a man got out of the car and walked up to the driver's side The couple described him as having dark wavy hair with prominent eyebrows. He was wearing a tan sports shirt that was open at the neck. Irvin rolled down the window and the man asked what they were doing there. He replied they were just listening to music. Irvin recalled, "'I then saw the man had a gun. It looked like a 38 caliber blue steel revolver. The man ordered Irvin and Denise to get out of the car and told them to lie on the ground.' He then produced a length of rope, which he used to bind Irvin's hands behind his back. The man asked Irvin for the key to the trunk of his car and Irvin replied that they were in the ignition. He retrieved the keys and began fumbling around at the back of the car, but he seemingly couldn't open the trunk. He then asked Irvin to open the trunk for him. By this point, Irvin had worked his arms loose and as he pretended to try and unlock the trunk, The lights of a passing car illuminated the area. Their assailant hollered, stoop down. Irvin recalled, that was my break. As soon as the car passed, I freed my hands and jumped the man. When the fight started, Denise started to run as I hoped she would. While we were fighting, I could feel the man's gun pressed against my chest. I could almost feel the bullet passing through my body, but for some reason, he didn't shoot. I knocked him off balance and ran. Irvin caught up with Denise in the woodland and they made their way back to the highway where they flagged down a truck driver and relayed their terrifying story. The couple then went to the police. Investigators theorized that this was the same man who had accosted Margaret and Roy less than 12 hours later, but this time, Margaret wasn't so lucky. Back at the crime scene, investigators finished up their search for evidence. They then began going door to door and asking residents whether they had seen anything out of the ordinary. In particular, they wanted to know if anybody else had observed the green Chrysler sedan that both Roy and Lieutenant Hagner had seen. Investigators strongly believed that this vehicle was the killer's vehicle, and both Roy and Lieutenant Hagner believed that it had Maryland license plates. By the following morning, the terrifying murder, and attempted murder, dominated the airwaves in and around Maryland. Newspapers provided the public with a description of the man, as well as the green Chrysler sedan that he may have been driving. That same afternoon, investigators got a tip from a local truck driver named Marvin Hardesty. He said that the previous afternoon, he had stopped to aid the driver of a green sedan whose car was in a ditch on Route 450. It was around half a mile away from the crime scene, shortly after the crime had been reported to the police. Investigators believed that this was the killer and that he had been escaping from the scene at such a high speed that he lost control of his car. Chief Wade commented, The car is the best lead we have. And he appealed to anybody who drove a similar car to contact the police and register their names, addresses, and telephone numbers. Before the end of the month, county laboratory analysis uncovered three well defined fingerprints lifted from Roy's car. The fingerprints didn't belong to Margaret or Roy, leading investigators to deduce that they had come from the killer. Over the next couple of weeks, a handful of persons of interest were arrested and questioned. Some of these persons of interest drove a car similar to the one the killer had allegedly driven. Others were just suspicious persons with criminal records. Each time there was an arrest, the community and Margaret's family held on to hope that it was the killer and that justice would finally be served. Each time, however, Roy failed to identify the person of interest as the assailant. Their fingerprints could not be matched to the unknown fingerprints inside the car. Over time, Roy found himself under a cloud of suspicion. Some suggested that he was the real killer, and that the gunman he had described was a complete fabrication. In July, he underwent an 11-hour polygraph examination, and the next morning, the media began reporting that the results were inconclusive. By the middle of July, the tips began to dwindle before investigators admitted that they had stalled in the investigation. Almost a hundred people who owned a similar vehicle to the one allegedly used by the killer had been interviewed and ruled out as suspects. Eventually, the weeks turned into months, and then months turned into years. The investigation was exhaustive and expansive, with Margaret's husband, John, even hiring a private investigator. As the case went cold, he requested outside help from Governor McKeldin. He stated, I don't care who does the job or how they do it. My wife has been murdered. My two children are without a mother, and the man who did it is walking free. I want him caught and punished. No matter who investigated the murder, each tip that was followed up only led to a dead end. By the following year, it was abundantly clear that there was no main suspect in the case. There wasn't even a primary person of interest. Margaret's family were left to pick up the pieces of their former lives and move forward as best they could. The thought that Margaret's killer was still out there was never far from their minds. Around 200 miles away, in Louisa County, Virginia, the Jackson family were preparing for a busy day. The date was January 11, 1959. That morning, 27-year-old Mildred got her two children, 4-year-old Susan and 17-month-old Janet, ready for the day ahead, while her husband, 29-year-old Carol, prepared breakfast. The Jackson family were a hard-working family who enjoyed an excellent reputation in the community. Carol had worked for the past six years as a clerk and a truck driver for the Maddox Feed Service in Louisa. He performed his duties in an exemplary fashion and made a good impression on his manager and colleagues. Just recently, Carol had planned for a change in his career. He wanted something where he could rise up the ranks and provide more stability for his family. He accepted a job with the Bank of Goochland and was scheduled to begin on the 1st of February. After breakfast, the family drove to the South Anna Baptist Church where Janet and Susan attended Sunday school. Carol had once been the superintendent of the Sunday School, while Mildred was president of the Women's Missionary Society of the Church. After Sunday School finished, the family drove back to their white-framed house just on the outskirts of Apple Grove, where they raised cattle. They had Sunday lunch, and at around 2 p.m., they set off in the car again, heading toward Richmond. The purpose of their trip was to take Carol's mother, Mrs. C.V. Jackson Sr., to a nursing home. While in Richmond, they also stopped to visit Curtis Jackson, Carol's uncle. At around 8 p.m., they visited the home of Mildred's parents, Lewis and Clara Hill, who lived in Buckner. At 9.40 p.m., the Jackson family bid farewell to Mildred's parents and climbed into their car to drive the 16 miles back home. The next day, Mildred's mother couldn't get in contact with her on the telephone, With each hour that passed, she became more and more concerned. It wasn't like Mildred to not be in contact. That evening, Clara couldn't wait any longer to hear from Mildred, so she and her husband climbed into their car to drive over to the family home to investigate. They took the same route the Jacksons would have taken to get home the night before. Along State Road 609, which ran between the Jacksons' home and their home, they came across the family's car. It was pulled over at the side of the road, but it was empty. Inside, they found the keys and Mildred's handbag. They also found some of the children's belongings as well as a package from a Richmond drugstore, several cartons of cigarettes, a quantity of twine, and a man's cap. Mildred's parents quickly raised the alarm with the police and a search party was immediately assembled. The area where the car was found was surrounded by dense woodland and the search for the family began here. The search party fanned out, looking for any evidence of the family, but the search was fruitless. By January 14th, the FBI were drafted in to assist and they shared their fears that the family may have been kidnapped. Sheriff Willis E. Prophet announced, we no longer believe they are in this area. I don't know what the kidnap motive would be unless some maniac was loose in the area. Investigators had reached this conclusion based on the comments of Evelyn Hutchins. Evelyn lived around a hundred yards from where the Jackson's car was found abandoned. She said that on the night they disappeared, headlights had illuminated her home. When she glanced out the window, she saw a car stop. The light stayed on for several minutes, and then she heard car doors slam a handful of times. Seconds later, a car sped past her home. Another neighbor who lived nearby corroborated her story. Investigators quickly learned of another peculiar incident that had taken place that night, around 20 miles away. Keith Waldrop and his family were driving along a country road when they were forced to stop by a man with long dark hair driving a light-colored car. The family were returning home from Rockville when the man whipped in front of them, forcing them to stop. When they stopped, the man bolted over to the side of the car and began trying to open the front door without saying a word. Keith managed to back up and speed off. The family were left shaken by the ordeal. And as soon as they heard of the Jacksons' disappearance, they made contact with the police. The days continued to trickle past with no new developments on the case. Investigators were still working on the theory that the Jackson family had been kidnapped, but they struggled to find a motive. By all accounts, the Jackson family were well-liked and respected in the community. They were a close-knit family with no enemies and were not in financial trouble. In an attempt to generate some much-needed information, a $5,000 reward was put forward by Bradley G. Jones, a family friend. The community also gathered for a prayer service at Ballard's store in Buckner. They huddled together and prayed that the Jackson family would be found alive and well. In early February, investigators announced they were stumped. Sheriff Prophet stated, "What we've got don't amount to anything. It's one of the strangest cases I've ever seen. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers." That's stamps.com. Code program.
0: On March 4th, James Beach and Johnny Richards were traversing their way through a wooded area two miles north of Fredericksburg in Spotsylvania County. It was around 45 miles away from where the Jacksons' car was found, and they were there to collect sawdust for gardening. James and Johnny entered the wooded area via a rutted dirt road. But before they even had a chance to collect the sawdust, something peculiar caught their eyes. It was a mound that was unnatural to the landscape. On top were dead branches and leaves. James pulled some of the brush loose, but as he did, he spotted a man's foot popping out from underneath the mound. They were stunned to find the lifeless body of a man whose hands were bound with a red necktie. He was wearing a blue suit. As James and John looked closer, they observed a second body underneath the first. It was the body of a small blonde haired girl wearing a red and white pinafore dress. James and John immediately alerted the police who arrived at the scene in a matter of minutes. Based on the clothing, they could tell that the bodies were those of Carol and Janet. State Police Captain W.W. Blythe announced, it is reasonable to assume that there are two other bodies close by. Dusk was already beginning to encroach by the time police arrived at the scene. The investigation was called off until the following morning and State Police Captain Blythe ordered a group of troopers to watch over the bodies. As dawn broke the next day, the investigation at the crime scene began. Near where the bodies lay, investigators found a pair of shoes that matched the description of the shoes Mildred had been wearing. Meanwhile, the bodies were transported to the medical examiner's office, where they were positively identified as Carol and Janet by Curtis, Carol's uncle. The pathologist determined that Carol had been killed by a single shot to the side of the head. The weapon used was a large caliber bullet, possibly a 38. He estimated that Carol could have been alive for a maximum of four to five hours after he was shot. He determined that Janet had been suffocated by her father's body. He theorized that she had been thrown into the pile of brush while still alive and then suffocated when her father's body fell on top of her. There was also an injury to Janet's head, which suggested she had been struck at least once, but this was not fatal. She had ultimately died from a combination of suffocation and exposure. Dr. Beto, the pathologist, stated... There is no indication that she had been dealt any violence sufficient to kill her. He just left her figuring, well, she didn't have anyone to take care of her and he didn't have to. He also determined that Carol and Janet had been dead for some time and theorized they had been killed shortly after they were abducted. The search for Mildred and Susan continued with investigators combing an area of 10 miles in diameter surrounding the area where Carol and Janet were found. Meanwhile, on March 7th, Carol and Janet were laid to rest. Around 700 mourners packed into the South Annan Baptist Church where Reverend E.R. Ferguson referred to Carol as, one of the most promising young men of our church, one who was endowed with great qualities of leadership. Following the service, investigators announced that they believed the murders were sexually motivated. They reached this conclusion based on the fact that when Carol and Janet were found, Mildred and Susan were not with them. This led them to believe that Carol and Janet were killed first, and then Mildred and Susan were taken somewhere else by their killer, and possibly sexually abused, and then killed. One investigator chillingly commented, We have been assuming all along that we are looking for a sex maniac. On March 21st, two teenage boys, John Bolin and John Patty, were playing in the woods in an isolated area off US 301 near Grambles, Maryland. It was around 80 miles away from where Carol and Janet were discovered at the beginning of the month. As they were playing, they came across a mound of fresh dirt. They speculated that it was an animal's nest and began scratching at the surface. They recoiled in horror as they unearthed a clump of hair. They ran to the closest home, around a quarter of a mile away, and the homeowner contacted the police. A group of officers descended on the scene and carefully began removing the dirt. The mound wasn't an animal's nest at all, but instead a grave that contained the bodies of Mildred and Susan. Mildred was found on her back in the grave with Susan face down on top of her. They were both fully clothed and a nylon stocking was wrapped tightly around Mildred's neck. The two bodies were transported to the medical examiner's office, where it was revealed that Mildred had been strangled to death with her own stocking. She had also sustained a beating to her face. Susan had died from a fractured skull. She had been struck with a heavy instrument and there was bruising to her face. Investigators speculated that Mildred may have been sexually assaulted as well, but her body was too decomposed for a definitive conclusion to be made. Back at the crime scene, investigators scoured the dense woodland in the surrounding vicinity. Around 50 feet away, they came across an abandoned shack. Inside, they found a red button missing from Mildred's dress. This further bolstered investigators' beliefs that the killer had been sexually motivated. They believe that after killing carol and janet he drove them to the isolated shack where he sexually abused mildred or even more inconceivable both mildred and susan the findings from the autopsy also added to this theory based on their stomach contents when mildred and susan were killed they had not eaten for several hours however based on the stomach contents of carol and janet they had each eaten much closer to the time of death This proved that Carol and Janet were killed hours before Mildred and Susan. The peculiar derelict building brought back reminders of the murder of Margaret Harold two years earlier. In fact, the location of the grave was just a couple of miles away from where Margaret had been shot dead. Investigators began to consider that the two cases were connected. They speculated that the killer may have wanted to bury Mildred and Susan near where he had killed Margaret. The similarities were striking, and investigators eventually announced that the murders were all perpetrated by the same person. A pervasive fear engulfed both Maryland and Virginia as the prospect of a serial killer loomed over a serial killer that was willing to kill children as well as men and women. Investigators weren't waiting too long before a tip came in that would break the case wide open. In May 1959, a letter was sent to Maryland and Virginia police. It was from a man named Glenn Moser, who shared his belief that he knew who the killer of all five victims was, He identified a 31 year old man named Melvin David Rees, a musician who had majored in economics at the University of Maryland, but never graduated. Glenn had grown up with Rees in Norfolk and told investigators that he was living with him in Norfolk for four weeks in the wake of the Jacksons' disappearance. According to Glenn, Rees had once struck up a conversation about murder and queried whether murder was wrong. Glenn stated, He would never say it was wrong to kill but believed there were individual standards of right and wrong. He detailed how he was with Rees in Hyattsville the night before Margaret was killed, and that Rees had been on a Benzedrine jag and looked wild-eyed. When Glenn learned about the murder of Margaret, he explained that he immediately thought of Rees because he had spoken about abductions in the past and had a keen interest in brutal detective stories. Glenn said that when he later saw the composite sketch of Margaret's killer, it looked remarkably similar to Rees. There were other details that added up as well that made Glenn believe Rees had killed Margaret. He said that Rees had inherited a gun from his father-in-law, and when Glenn asked about the weapon, Rees became defensive and claimed he didn't own one. Glenn explained that when he moved with his family in 1958, he decided to forget about the whole thing, but rees popped back up in his life both glenn and rees were in the jazz scene and in 1959 they rented a home together along with rees' girlfriend pat Whedonhouse, who was a nightclub singer and a dancer glenn tried to put the ominous thoughts that rees had killed margaret to the back of his mind but then when glenn read about the disappearance of the jackson family his fears about rees floated back to the surface he recalled how the night before the Jackson family were killed, Rees had left their apartment at around 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning. He decided to reach out to Pat to share his fears, telling her he was afraid for her life. Pat scoffed and accused Glenn of making the story up because he was attracted to her and jealous of Rees. Glenn decided to move out of the shared apartment, but remained in contact with both Reese and Pat. Then, when the bodies of the Jackson family were discovered in March, he decided to confront Rees. He remembered, I asked him point blank, and he never denied them. He just evaded the question, asking how I could ask. After writing the letter to the police, Glenn also made contact with the FBI. Investigators began to look into Rees, but there was a problem. He had moved from the apartment that he once shared with Glenn and Pat And had left no forwarding address. They knew that he worked in various jazz clubs in the area, but nobody could point investigators in the direction of Rees. As they searched for him, they also looked into his background. They found an interesting piece of information that would solidify him as the main suspect in the murders even further. When the shack was searched near the area where Margaret was killed, There was one photograph of a woman on the wall that had been ripped from a University of Maryland yearbook. It was Wanda Tipton, a former girlfriend of Rees. On the morning of June 24, 1960, the FBI swooped in on Melvin Rees while he was in a music store in West Memphis, Arkansas. They had been tipped off by Glenn after Rees made contact with him and informed him he was working in the music store. Upon the arrest, Pat stood by Rees and accused Glenn of being jealous. She commented, Glenn wanted to be a jazz guitarist, but he just didn't have what it takes. As Rees was carted off to jail, investigators obtained a search warrant for his apartment. They were looking for anything that could directly connect him to the five murders. They came across a 38 caliber pistol tucked away in a musical case. It was the same kind of weapon that the pathologist suspected was used in the murder of Margaret and Carol. Unfortunately, ballistic testing could not be performed due to the fact that the bullets that killed Margaret and Carol were far too damaged. The search continued, and investigators found a diary. Inside, there was a graphic description of the murders, indicating the motivation was sexual. The diary entry was dated two months before their bodies were found, and it was written in Rhee's handwriting. One of the notes ominously read, Caught on a lonely dirt road after pulling them over, leveled pistol and ordered them out and into the car trunk was open for husband and both bound. Drove to select area and killed husband and baby. Now the mother and daughter were all mine." Investigators now had no doubt that Rees was the killer, but first, they needed to see if he could be identified by Master Sergeant Roy D. Hudson. They placed Rees in a police lineup and asked Roy whether he could identify the man who killed Margaret. He pointed directly to Rees. In the wake of Melvin Rees' arrest, investigators speculated that these weren't the only murders he had committed. There were others that bore striking similarities to his modus operandi. He was a suspect in the 1955 shooting of 16-year-old Nancy Marie Schumet and 14-year-old Michael Ann Ryan near College Park in Maryland. He was also suspected of committing the murders of 18-year-old Mary Elizabeth Fellers and 16-year-old Shelby John Venable, whose naked bodies were found in the Potomac River. In February of 1961, Ree stood trial in Baltimore, Maryland on federal charges of kidnapping and murdering Mildred and Susan. Investigators had decided that he would stand trial on just these charges since he had taken them over state lines, making it a federal offense. He was, however, still charged with the murders of Margaret, Carol, and Janet, and was expected to face trial on these charges at a later date. Assistant District Attorney H. Russell Smouse presented to the jury all of the evidence collected against Rees, including the ominous notes found inside his apartment. He revealed that two plastic gun grips had been found alongside the bodies of Carol and Janet. He said that these were a match to the 38-caliber Colt Cobra revolver found inside Rees' apartment. A forensic expert then testified that faint traces of human blood were found on parts of the weapon. The jury would also hear from key witness Glenn Moser, who detailed the suspicions he had of his former friend. He stated, "'I've never accused the defendant of this crime. "'That's wrong. "'That gets me angry. "'I wanted him investigated. "'I wanted him cleared as much as anything. "'I still feel that way.'" The defense contended that Reese was innocent, They called on Keith Waldrop, whose family had been stopped on the road by a man the same night as the Jackson family. Both Keith and his wife had been unable to pick Rees out of a lineup. The defense also called on Pat, Melvin Rees' girlfriend, who contended that she had been with Rees the night the Jackson family were killed. She said she helped him load his vibraphone into his car for a four-hour trip to Washington DC from Norfolk, Virginia. He was scheduled to play in a club that night from 8.30 p.m. until 11 p.m., but it was already 6 p.m. by the time the car was packed. Pat testified that Reese figured he wouldn't make it in time, so they went to a friend's apartment for a jazz session. This contradicted the testimony of Glenn, who maintained that Reese was not around on the night the Jackson family were abducted. The jury were sent to deliberate. They returned five hours later finding Melvin Rees guilty of kidnap and murder. Jurors also needed to reach a determination on Rees' punishment, but ultimately, they opted out of sentencing him to death. This meant that he received a sentence of life in prison. In September, Rees was transported to Virginia to stand trial for the murder of Carol. Prosecutors had decided not to try him for the murders of Janet or Margaret. Margaret. He was once again convicted, but this time he was ordered to die in the electric chair. On October 9, 1962, the Virginia Supreme Court upheld the death sentence, but a number of appeals followed. Melvin Rees argued that his convictions should be overturned because he had been determined to be incompetent. He had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, but the U.S. Supreme Court concluded they would not take any action on the appeal until Rees was considered competent. In a memorandum dated in March of 67, the Virginia Attorney General's office urged the court to proceed. They wrote, to do otherwise will leave this case in a legal limbo, which would continue until Rees' demise by natural causes. Then in 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court outlawed the death penalty which meant that Ree's sentence was commuted to life in prison. In 1974, he spoke with the Richmond Times Dispatch. While he had always contended that he was innocent, he made a confession. He stated, I knew I was going to be found out, even when I was doing it. I was ready to perish, I guess. He continued, saying that at the time of the Jackson family murder, he had been awake for several days on amphetamines. He then revealed that Janet was in the arms of her father when he was shot. He commented, The smallest one, I had lost track of it. I didn't even remember it. It was in the arms of the one that got shot in the head. He then spoke about the murder of Susan, stating, The other one, I didn't know what to do. It slept in the trunk all night. Then in the morning, it came out of the trunk and wondered where her mother was. And uh, I didn't know what to do and she started hollering and crying, and she ran out of this little piece of a house, and I picked up a two-by-four and hit her in the back of the head. While Rees was never convicted of Margaret's murder, he confessed to this crime as well as admitting his involvement in the 1956 murders of Mary Elizabeth Felters and Shelby John Venable. On July 10, 1995, Melvin Rees died in prison from heart problems. His immediate family refused to take custody of his body and was buried in Springfield, Missouri, after a funeral service attended by prison representatives. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening and please be safe.